Into every generation a slayer is born, one girl in all the world, a chosen one. She alone will wield the strength and the skill to fight the vampires, demons, and the forces of darkness, to stop the spread of their evil and the swell of their number. She is the slayer. Hello, I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to the first of what I hope will be many alternate galaxy podcasts uh, coming to you from the Doctor Who show team. Yes, this is something we decided to do, Dave, or you decided to do, and I quickly jumped on board, uh, when we realised that Doctor Who won't be coming back to our screens, new Doctor Who, for a long time. And, you know, it might be nice to just to slip some different stuff onto the feed from time to time. That's right. So we've decided that we're going to look at different television shows, uh, broadly within the sci-fi fantasy genre, but depending on the success and the feedback, who knows what paths will go down. But th- we want to particularly look at the shows that I think we reference a lot when we're talking about Doctor Who. So, you know, we've talked a lot about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Babylon 5 and Blake 7 and Star Trek, and there'll be other ones as well that will come up and actually take some time to explore them. Absolutely, because these shows are getting to an age now where there could be a generation of people out there, gosh, that sounds scary, who haven't actually seen them. That's right. So they could be shows that people have heard about and often wondered if they could should watch them and what they think of them. So we hope you can listen to these podcasts on a different level. If you already have seen the show and you're a fan of the show, come with us, see if you agree with us about what our favourite episodes were and what we thought of it, and write in and tell us if you disagree. But more importantly, if you're someone who's never really watched this show, we want to tell you a bit about it. And later on, we're going to talk about things like not just our favourite episodes or our guilty pleasures, but what's a good episode just to try out if you just want to sample one or two and see if you like it? Or how long should you stick with a show before you know it's not for you? For example, if we were doing Star Trek The Next Generation, I'll probably even say just skip most of the first two series and start at season three, and then if you like it, go back go back to the um, first couple knowing that there's good stuff to come. So that's the sort of advice we want to talk about. Absolutely. And these are going to be structured chats. We're not just going to ramble for the next hour or so. That's very important. It is, but it's our first one, so we'll see how we go. And as we flagged on our main show last week, our first series to get the treatment is, of course, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. Let's start off with the theme music, I think, Dave. Let's go. So before we get into any more details, that theme music says a lot about this show just in itself because it starts off with those traditional horror spooky sort of notes and then smashes that with a very modern, youthful and extremely 90s 
uh, beat. Oh, yeah, very fast, very driving guitar. And, of course, what we're seeing on screen, you know, lots of quick cuts of the, the handsome young lead actors doing exciting things uh, in, in typical 90s style. That's right. So Buffy the Vampire Slayer, for those who aren't familiar with it, is, I think you could say, the breakout series for Joss Whedon. Oh, absolutely. Who, of course, went on to do Firefly, um, Dollhouse, wrote a couple of the best Marvel movies, in my opinion. Mm, definitely. And it ran from 1997 to 2003 in America. The first five series on the Warner Brothers Network, and then the last two were picked up by UPN, which was just emerging at the time. That's right. So seven seasons in total. And, of course, it also spawned a spin-off series, Angel. That's right, we will touch on Angel, but we won't go too far down that path. No, it's a whole other topic on its own. It is, it really is, it does stand up as a series very much on its own. But yeah, this was a big deal for about, well maybe not all of it seven years, we'll talk about that, but there was a time where in sci-fi circles and in science fantasy circles, you couldn't throw a rock without finding somebody getting very excited about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, absolutely. It was absolutely mega. But as I was saying a moment ago before we played the theme music, it's been gone for a while now. 2003, that's 14 years ago. It's an awfully long time. There are 14-year-olds walking around who weren't even born when this was ending. It's, uh, it's crazy. There are people who've graduated university who were born after this started. Yeah, now that is really scary. Let's, is scary. let's get off that topic. That's right. So we'll, we'll talk very quickly about in broad terms, what this show was. Mm. And there's a really good explanation for it if you listen to the commentary on the very first episode that Joss Whedon does, where he says, very simply, he wanted to completely invert the girl in peril horror trope. And hence he invented Buffy, who is a vampire slayer, someone who is born into the generation with mystical powers and whose job it is to fight vampires and actually show a young woman as a lead character and a strong lead character and someone who is everything that horror hadn't been for, well, the last hundred years, I guess. Yeah, and look, now what is interesting, and I'm going to pull you up right now, Dave, because you're calling her a vampire slayer, and of course that is in the title of the show. But more broadly, she is the slayer and fights all manner of dark powers. Vampires are a big part of that, but she's not just a vampire slayer. That is true. They're broadly called demons in the series, and it goes into this whole thing about a previous universe where these demon forces existed and they can only come into our universe in a tainted sort of form, which is where they inhabit the bodies of humans or creatures and get all variations of demons. You're right, actually. You go through, in the first series especially, there's only a couple of episodes that are actually about vampires, but Warner Brothers did insist that as often as possible, even if it was just a small breakaway scene, she at least was seen fighting a vampire for 30 seconds. Yeah, even if it was just like the, the, the very start of the show, you know, she stakes a vampire, then they get onto, you know, whatever the creature is in that episode, like a giant praying mantis or something. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and we'll talk about that. Indeed. We'll talk about that. Indeed. Now, I've made a few notes here myself. I mean, what, what is a slayer? It's a young female um, bestowed with mystical powers. Uh, which give her superhuman senses, strength, agility, resilience, speed, basically to fight the forces of darkness. And into each generation, as Dave, you said at the start of the show, a slayer is born. And when each slayer dies, usually because they're killed by a monster of some kind, a new 
girl somewhere in the world is activated. They could be in Africa or the US or Europe or somewhere. And they become the Slayer and take on these superhuman powers. It's, uh, it's quite a cool concept, actually. It, it is. So obviously Buffy's been called in the town of Sunnydale, which is in California. Now, the big conceit of the show that we need to mention is the Hellmouth, which is this entrance to hell, basically this portal between the universes that attracts demons to it. And apparently this was actually the final concept that got Warner Brothers over the line in terms of commissioning the show because the executives were going, well, isn't it just going to get a bit bit forced every time? Oh, look, there's another vampire in our town. Oh, look, this baddie's come to our town. And so Joss Whedon invented this concept of the hell mouth. And it, no, 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 it, it attracts the baddies to the town. And that's going to all center around this hell mouth thing. I've gone, yeah, cool. That'll, that'll do it. That'll solve our problem. That's right. So unlike a murder happening every week in Midsummer, in Midsummer Murders, <laughs> yes, exactly, and that being exactly. very unnatural, this is a hot spot for supernatural activity. So it's incredibly natural that there's tons of monsters and vampires and things getting about the place. It is, and it's something that other serious sins have stolen. Teen Wolf, for example, has a convergence of lines on this old tree thing that has the same sort of effect. So it's something that's really had a bit of an influence. Well, let's bring this back to Doctor Who. Class did it and even referenced the Hellmouth. That's right. You can't seriously expect these juveniles to deal with whatever's going to come through these tears in space and time. Through to what? It's like a Hellmouth. That is right. So, yeah, it's a pretty cool concept. Now... Most Slayers live their lives in a fairly lonely sort of existence, but Buffy's a bit different. She is. I mean, she has a, a family. She has a, a mother and a father. They're divorced. Uh, she goes to school. She's a cheerleader. She's, you know, a fairly typical, normal young girl. And being called as the Slayer, I don't think was, you know, something she never really thought would happen to her. No, and she actually does have friends in high school, so... We meet over the course with a couple of friends who stick with it the whole season. There's Xander and there's Willow. And there's a number of others that go on throughout. She dates several guys through the course of the series. And there's also her Watcher. Rob, do you want to tell us about the Watchers? The Watchers. The Watchers Council. These guys descended... When the original Slayer was called, there are a group of people in, in Africa who uh, looked after her. And this eventually evolved into the concept of the Watchers Council. These people who could spot the potential slayers out there and train with them uh sometimes they couldn't spot who a potential slayer was at all and sometimes a slayer would get called and they'd be like oh my god now we've got to start training them but sometimes they could be also training them in advance just in case they were the girl who got called in that generation and basically they're the the obi-wan kenobi you know in in the show they're often portrayed as british very british actually <laughs> and, yes and they have at least one headquarters in the uk and they're sort of the stiff upper lip stuffy types who are training the slayers in this case rupert giles trains buffy he's played by anthony stewart head another tie back to doctor who of course he's been in doctor who he was in school reunion as the headmaster okay first of all i'm a vampire slayer and secondly i'm retired hey i know why don't you kill him I'm a watcher. I, I haven't the skill. Oh, come on. Stake through the heart, a little sunlight. It's like falling off a log. Uh, uh, Slayer slays. A, a watcher. Watches? Yes. No. He he trains her. He, 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 he prepares her. Prepares me for what? And one interesting thing about his casting is that when all the other actors came in to play this part, they were playing in a very Obi-Wan Kenobi, Alec Guinness sort of knowing type role or, or a knowing type way. Whereas Anthony Stewart Head came in and he plays it very, very uncertainly in terms of 
this is his first time as a watcher and he doesn't quite know how it all works in practice and he doesn't know how he's meant to deal with a slayer and some of the things he deals with there like how do you train a 17 16 year old girl knowing that her destiny is to fight demons and be killed at a very young age Mm. that's right i mean you can see the temptation to play it like an obi-wan type indeed that's how i describe what they basically are but he takes it in that interesting direction he becomes almost a surrogate father for buffy i think yeah he does that's a very good description Uh, we'll talk more about him as we chat about the series the one thing we should probably mention as well is that this gang of characters that surrounds buffy and across the course of the series is shown to actually make her stronger for having these friendships and these supporters become known as the Scooby Gang. And it eventually, it was invented by fans, but actually eventually worked its way into the show, this this idea of the Scooby Gang, which is kind of cool. That's right. They'd be the kids in the first series of the show who'd be hanging out in the library where Rupert Giles was, because he was a librarian, uh, reading through these dusty old books and kind of looking weird to the rest of the school, increasingly, because they'd, they'd always be hanging out with Giles. And uh, I, I always thought that was quite nice. Dave, I've jotted down something here, and if I don't get it out now, I probably won't get it out for the rest of the show. And that's for people out there who know the X-Men comics, the character of Kitty Pride in the X-Men comics was an early model for Buffy. And a quote from Joss Whedon, who uh, created Buffy, if there's a bigger influence on Buffy than Kitty, I don't know what it was. She was an adolescent girl finding out she has great power and dealing with it. I didn't know that. Mm. It's very interesting. There you go. Now, something else to mention is, I mentioned being in the school library there and Rupert Giles is the librarian and so on. Buffy really has two distinct eras. The one where they're in high school doing that sort of thing and then one where some of them go off to university and, and others are trying to get jobs and all that. There's there's almost two distinct sort of phases of Buffy. Would you agree with that? I, I wouldn't. Something I want to discuss in a lot more detail is how they transition between those two with controversial success, I think we could say. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'll have something to say as well, I think. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that, I think, is a very good outline of what the series is about. Rob, how did you discover the series? Dave, when we started jotting down, you know, the questions we'd, we'd consider on this podcast, I had to really think about that. And off the top of my head, the answer was that at some stage in the late 1990s, Foxtel the, uh, the big cable network here, played all the Buffy episodes it had for Halloween one year, and they called it Slayer Fest. And I thought, you know what? I can do better than this. I'm going to go digging. So I went I went online and I dug around Google Groups, which lets me read all the old Usenet posts from stuff like alt.tv.buffy.com. Uh, dash v slayer or something like that i think that was the use group uh, the usenet group and i found a post so thank you to giovanna ostacini from apple computer australia who on 14th of september 1999 said this for those in australia who are subscribed to foxtel there's a slayer fest on 25th 26th of september 12 to 5 30 p.m both days it'll be the first 12 episodes of season one yum so that's where I started, Dave. I started in September of 1999 by watching all of season one across two days on Foxtel. Wow, that's quite a commitment. Yeah, it's very precise too. It is, it is. I can remember the first episode I saw was Teacher's Pet, which is, I think, the fourth episode of season one. I saw it when it first went out on terrestrial TV here, and I really enjoyed it. I really liked it. Uh, it was slightly quirky episode it's the one that has a giant praying mantis demon 
who's taking all the young <laughs> schoolboys to mate with them so that they can she can um, breed. And I just thought that was such a weird and wacky concept. And I can remember, remember the line that, that made me know this is just a little bit different, a little bit edgy, was the bit where all of the characters are sort of have just worked out that this demon only takes virgins. And, you know, there's this ironic twist that all of these footy jocks who talk about how many girls they've had are being taken by her. And uh, yeah. Buffy says... Oh, Xander's going to be taken by it. Oh, but that's okay. Xander's going to be in Willow, who knows him better, goes, in a lot of trouble. <laughs> yes. And that, that, that kind of hooked me in. Unfortunately, because I was doing high school at the time, the, 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 the pointy end of high school, I didn't get to keep up with it until a couple of years later when I was at uni and some friends had season three on video. And they said, oh, you've got to check out what it's doing now. And that, I just fell in love and went right back. And this was one of the first two series that I ever was, and I can confess this now because it's nearly 20 years ago, illegally downloading. Ooh, wow. Season six and seven of this, I, I was getting illegally from the US back in the very early days of illegal downloads where you were taking, you know, small, you know, like four or five megabit files of one little act of an episode at a time. <laughs> yeah, I remember those days. Uh, for me, I was getting them as they came in on Foxtel. I don't know what the delay was, though, from the US. I think it was reasonable. It, it was months, not years, yes. Yeah, something, something along those lines. So let's chat about this generally. I think one of the things that really marks Buffy out as a series, less so today, but it was a big deal back then, was this whole idea of the season arc with a big bad oh for sure that that was something very new and look before i get into some of my other points not only that there was also the length of the individual episodes being about 45 minutes i I, surely i watched other shows that were 45 minutes long before this but it suddenly seemed to me that this was the way ahead for tv it was like i'm i'm getting a whole story in 45 minutes this isn't like four 25 minute segments or whatever it just seems so fresh and and fast i remember thinking it was very fast originally now some of the episodes might seem slow to me which is kind of scary but at the time they seemed fast yeah that is true they do pack a lot in and and that's i think a lot of it's down to Joss Whedon's writing i think he's one of those writers along with somebody like Joe Michael Straczynski along with Stephen Moffat who can write these very sharp, witty uh, bits of, uh, of script. And if you've seen the first Avengers movie, which Whedon wrote, I think that's a really good example of that very clever and funny but dramatic style of writing that he has. I think that, that really epitomises what he does. It certainly does. And, I mean, you mentioned funny there, and that's one of my big points here. I think what captured me first about Buffy was the humour. Because, honestly, I'm not interested in horror as a genre at all. You know, once in a while I might catch a horror film, you know, almost by mistake. I've never sought out and read Stephen King, even when he was the hottest novelist amongst us, the, the kids at school. It was really the humour that sold me on Buffy, big time. And I think that's really important to note for people who have never watched it and maybe aren't horror fans to realise that this is actually a really funny show. Even in some of the more serious episodes, there's still quite a good bit of humour. Oh, there absolutely is. We'll, we'll talk a bit about the emotional punch that it can pack shortly. But, uh, yeah, very funny, very clever. Self-contained episodes, but they build across a season. So in season one, we have the Master, who is an ancient vampire trying to escape, and that goes across the first season. In season two, you have a series of uh, old and quite powerful vampires, Spike, Angelus, and the like. We won't go too far into the twist there. 
And you have the mayor in season three, for example, and each season has what became known as the big bad. And so this was one of the really early examples, uh, along with probably Babylon 5, that drew from, uh, and, and, and we just said this, it drew from Blake 7 in terms of, yep, you can watch each episode self-contained, but if the, you watch the entire series one after the other and actually dedicate yourself to it and look at the plots, there are very detailed character arcs. There's stuff that happens early in the season that has an effect on stuff later in the season, or a character might be introduced with a couple of lines. I can remember when the mayor was first introduced in season three, and you just think, oh, it's just the mayor of the city. He's got one scene. Who cares? And then he's in another episode being slightly darker. And then in another episode, you see he's involved in the conspiracy. Mm. And suddenly he becomes the big bad character of that season. But you wouldn't know it when you see the first one. No, you just think he's some really quirky guy. Yeah, he's just, well, they've just invited the mayor for this event. Well, that, that makes sense. The city, would, the city would have a mayor and then you learn more about him. And I think that's that's really cool. And it's the start, I think, of that idea of television being made to be watched again and again and again. Yeah, to go out and buy the box set. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is your favourite big bad? I'll, I'll, I'll spring that on you as a, as a question without notice. That, that's fine because we've just been mentioning him. It's the mayor. Yeah, it is for me as well. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> we might have some corresponding favourite episodes when we get when we get up uh, to that section. Yeah, look, it's possible. He's played by Harry Groner, and it's a really wonderful performance. Oh, it certainly is. But, you know, you're mentioning characters in general there, and I think it's also the characters and their relationships with each other that sold me on that first series when I was watching it across those two days. You know, I love the concept and character of, of Giles as, as Buffy's watcher. I loved what Buffy could do, but that she wasn't perfect. I mean, Buffy can often be quite annoying and pretty self-righteous about things and come off as really unlikable at times, well, at least to me, which is quite brave when the titular character is like that. Well, well gonna... this, is, this is the thing. She's a teenage girl. Yeah. And she's written as a very powerful character, a very authoritative character, but with all the... Uh, I hesitate to use the word flaws, but all the difficulties that come with being a teenage girl. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Which makes it all the more realistic and, and, and relatable, I, I guess, both for teenage uh, boys and girls as as well. Um, but I also love the relationship between Xander and Willow, these two kids who had been at school all their life and they never really got together, but they probably could have a relationship if they just tried a bit harder, but they never do. Ooh, spoilers. And I guess at this point, when I started to watch it in 99, I was only seven years post high school, and three of that had been at uni, so it was only really a few years beyond being an educational scenarios where I was sitting around with a group of friends. So this seemed very relatable in a lot of ways. Not that we were out fighting monsters, but in every other way, like the relationships between people and the interpersonal communication. And and I guess, Dave, you've already touched on this. It was even closer for you. You were at uni, I guess, when you really got into Buffy. And I guess you may have even been watching Buffy episodes where they were at uni while you were at uni. Was that the case? That was very much the case. Uh, the character of Buffy and I are actually born in the same year. So we graduated high school in the same year. We went to uni in the same year. So it was really close for me. Yeah, and, and even for me, obviously just being a few years beyond that, it still felt super relatable because, you know, I'd only just left that sort of environment. Now, of course, when I look back, it seems an awfully long time ago. And, and what's really interesting about it, and I think this is one of the really big things that has sold the series and kept it fresh for many, many years, is that it's not just about superficial adventures. A lot of what goes on in the plot is very deliberately 
an allegory or a reflection upon the trials of going through high school and later university. For example, that idea that maybe your substitute teacher is slightly weirder from another planet is that, well, actually, yes, the substitute teacher is a demon. Or, <laughs> yeah. or, or, or more profound than that, um, the idea that the fear that many girls might have that they will uh, have their first sexual encounter with a boy and he'll then turn out to be a monster because all he wanted was to get in their pants and then he rejects them. Buffy experiences that, but in a very literal sense. Her first boyfriend is a vampire and he does turn bad uh, after that encounter because that one moment of perfect happiness is the trigger for him to lose his soul. And so she goes through that experience of, I gave myself to a boy and now he's turned into a monster. And in a literal sense, but it's a metaphor for that fear that people do have in high school. When I created the show of Buffy, I um, I had made the movie already, well, I'd written the movie already, and the movie was designed to sort of twist horror movies and empower this young girl, but that's not the basis for a TV show um, because that's just one story. So um, I spent a lot of time thinking about well, what would sustain it and that click of, oh yeah, high school was a horror movie. It was a horror movie of humiliation and isolation and power and cruelty and, um, and to put that into the horror movie genre every week, there would be enough for it let's say seven years worth of entertainment where I could actually tell stories that meant something to me about my life and still have with the er and the woo and the sex and the fun. Yeah, it's very clever, the writing. And this, this stuff isn't overplayed in the story. You know, it's there if you want to dig in at that level. If you don't, it's just, oh, we turned into a monster. Yeah, that's right. There's always going to be you know a, a fun action sequence, an episode that ends with her using a bazooka to blow up her ancient demon even though it's got you know 45 minutes of you know banter and wit and you know, really in-depth emotional punches you still get the fun of hey she pulls out the bazooka and blows up the monster exactly so yeah look they're all the things that that made me just fall in love with the show in in that first series particularly i i thought where has this been all my life it was so new and fresh the big thing that sets it apart for me is the emotional impact that it has the characters are so real that when bad stuff happens to them, and, and we'll talk about this, bad stuff really does happen to them, you really feel it in a way that I probably don't with almost any other series. And I'm going to confess something to you here, Rob. Mm-hmm. There's two episodes in season two mm-hmm. that I watched once when I got the DVDs, and I've never been able to bring myself to watch them again because I was so emotionally gutted when I watched them. I just don't want to relive that ever again and i'm not the most you know emotional hard on the sleeve kind of guy but that really got to me and i just can't go back there wow i I think i might pull out the episode list and try and guess these later off uh off mic with you perhaps uh yeah it'd be interesting to see if you can but they're around the middle of season two (laughs) well don't give me too many clues (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah look i make the serious point it is it is very effective and yeah packs an emotional punch and some of that comes down to the music, which we have to talk about. Please. I, I know you're very into the music. So the music is mostly written by Christoph Beck. He doesn't do all of it, but he does a lot of it. And there's some pieces in there that are really, really powerful. If you just want to look up on YouTube um, the Buffy piece Sacrifice or the Buffy piece Close Your Eyes, which is the love theme from Series 2, they stand alone as very powerful pieces of music. And again... I look at something that was around at that time, for example, like Star Trek, 
And in that, the music is just very much the, the stings, the little melodies, the little things to punctuate the action. Buffy has these real pieces of music that stand alone. And this, again, with a couple of other contemporaries from the 90s, does start that trend that I think Murray Gold really picks up in Doctor Who of having these sort of symphonic, swirling, emotional pieces of music. There are times in Buffy where it might go a little bit too far, but when it hits the nerve, God, it's effective. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I know it's a it's a very common refrain for people now if they don't like when the music swells in a movie or in an episode of Doctor Who. They're saying, oh, the music's telling me to emote now. I hate this. But in a movie or a TV show where it just does hit the right note, <laughs> no pun intended, like you say, it's amazing. I was coming home tonight actually listening to some of the music from Alexander, the Oliver Stone film. Oh, yes. And that is a film that people absolutely pan I think I'm the only person in the world who actually likes it. Yet there are scenes in that movie that can bring me to tears, and it's often through the music. There's this one particular... I'll give an example. There's this one particular scene where Alexander uh, is getting his horse Bucephalus for the first time. His father, King Philip, doesn't think it can be ridden, and Alexander rides it and shows that it can be ridden, and this music plays. And then towards the end of the film, where Alexander is fighting in India he decides he has to charge at these Indian war elephants and he starts whispering to his horse, come on, we're going to do this one last time. He, 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 he's sure he's going to die. And that musical refrain comes back. And I know it's there to make me tear up, but by God, it makes me tear up. Yeah, I think another really good example is stuff from the Star Wars trilogy. You look at the Darth Vader funeral pyre scene. That's a powerful scene on its own, but you add the force theme over the top and it's you know, really effective. The love theme from Empire Strikes Back, same thing. No one ever accuses John Williams of being over the top or, oh, he's forcing me to emote when I don't want to. If it works, it can work really effectively, and I think Buffy's a really good example of where it does work. Well, you know what? I think that's because people didn't used to say that stuff in those days. Yeah. It's, it's become a really trendy thing to say online over the last decade or so, and so yeah. that's why people don't say it about Williams. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's just a weird online thing. You just see people see it and copy each other you know and, and I, I wonder if they really mean it sometimes yes so <laughs> the first three series of Buffy are her doing her last three years of high school yeah and and that actually works very well it's the way the story is set up as you said earlier Giles as her watcher has a job as a librarian so they can use the library as a place to conspire and do their research and to plan Buffy trains in there and they all come to school and they all come together and that, that works really, really effectively, as I say. It's the way the show was created. It's a perfect setup. It, it is. The problem is that they don't pretend that you know, the students don't age or try to keep them artificially there forever. They do go through the school year in their final year and they have homecoming and graduation and their exams and all of that sort of thing. And then they graduate high school in their two-part story that's called graduation. Hmm. They then move to university. What did you think of how this landed, Rob? I was really upset by it. I was still enjoying the show, but I was upset that Buffy and Willow were at uni, Xander wasn't, uh, so he was off somewhere else, Giles no longer had a library to go to, uh, quite literally, um, and not just because they'd left high school, and he was at home, and it all felt a bit weird, like it felt 
like they were doing the natural thing, like this is what happens. And maybe it reminded me perhaps of what happened when I went off to university and I left my high school, well, some of my high school friends behind and some of them came with me and so on. And it it's an unnerving, rattling sort of experience. And that's almost how I felt with a lot of the, maybe the first half of season uh, four. Yeah, it's really interesting you put it like that because I have a big plus and a big minus for season four. My big minus is that I, I agree with you they didn't quite work out how they were going to set everybody up in this new scenario properly. Giles particularly is just kind of there because he has to be there. There's no real sort of logical role for him to be playing. Uh, Xander at least is just hanging around the town uh, and, and it doesn't quite work. And I think they get that right in season five where they make a couple of structural changes we'll talk about in a moment. However, now that I look back at series four, I've really come to like it because just as the first three series had all these high school metaphors, season four has these wonderful university metaphors. So the idea of you going to university and you think that everybody's against you is there in part one, but they really are against Buffy because there's a nest of vampires who are there. And they are the most wonderful, annoying college freshman vampires <laughs> you know you will ever see. They're, 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 this is a really quite a funny episode, particularly when you get to the vampires. The idea that, that your college roommate um, is so bad they could be a demon is literal. Her roommate does turn out to be a demon. Yeah. The idea that you're going to lose a lot of your friendship groups and everything actually becomes integral to the plot. You know, this idea that, okay, in high school your friends might have girlfriends and boyfriends, but it's all a bit superficial and transient. But then you go to university and suddenly their relationships are more important than their friendships. Yeah. And that actually becomes integral to the plot of season four. Plus, we need to talk about the initiative. Yes, we do. What I would call the Torchwood pilot. <laughs> yes, this is a, uh, a paramilitary group right under the nose of the university, literally, because they're, they're underground under the university. And uh, Buffy gets involved with, uh, with one of the members, not that she knows it at the time, who becomes her new boyfriend for this uh, season. And can I say, this character, Riley... I even rebelled against Riley when I first started watching season four. I was thinking, no, no, you know, Buffy should be with Angel. Well, I know there are issues around that, but, uh, you know, I I couldn't accept someone new being with Buffy. I was so still wed to how it had been in the high school years, and that was just another part of it, this more mature relationship she was having with this totally new character. No, what's happening? Uh. Yeah, but he does turn out to be one of the Marines who's working for the government. And this is, again, something that I think Buffy does really well. It doesn't pretend that the government and the authorities don't notice people being killed by vampires or a very high death count in a particular town or mm. demon bodies being found. It kind of, and, and, and again, this is Torchwood 20 years before Torchwood or 15 years before Torchwood. The government actually does know and they have set up this initiative to try and fight the demons and harness the demons. And you do get for a while this wonderful clash of uh, Buffy, you know, she finds out about the initiative and she gets taken down and they're sort of talking about how we've got the latest multi-million dollar weapons and energy rays and um, force shields and, you know, all this latest technology. What do you do? And she's like, I poke them with a stick. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and this initiative has been there for a long time. It hasn't just sort of popped up in the last year or so with, with Riley being there. It's, it's been there for decades, I think, if I remember my law correctly. Yeah, I think so. But even when you go back to high school, the principal they had there, oh, Principal Schneider, what a great character. Armin Schumann, great character. Yeah. 
it's shown a couple of episodes that he knows a little bit that something's going on and he's part of a cover-up. Yeah, you know, things look normal on the outside, but more people sort of know things the more you the more you dig. It's, it is very clever. Yeah, it is. And I, I like the way that it does exist in a more real world. We then get on to season five. It's not my favourite season, but it would compete to be my favourite season. And I think it's where they, again, get the format right. Giles buys a magic shop, which it sounds like a you know, really... It almost sounds like a famous five sort of idea. Giles buys a magic shop. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. But that gives them, again, the equivalent of the library. It gives Giles a reason to be there. It mm. gives them somewhere to actually go and meet and do their Scooby gang stuff. Uh, another character that's introduced there gets to work in the shop. And uh, Willow, by this stage, is going down the path of learning more about magic and everything. So suddenly everybody sort of has a reason to be there again. And I think that works very, very well, tied in with the fact that you've also got a really good recurring big bad in that episode in Glory, who is a female big bad and almost, you know, almost beats Buffy. Yeah, yeah, that is that is true. But yeah, I, I like the magic shop very much. It's not only a place to meet, but also they're surrounded by magical artifacts, magical books. It's very natural for them to be, oh, let's investigate what this monster of the week could be. And they can pull a book down off the shelf and it seems absolutely natural, just like they're back in the library. It's... It's a much better turnaround than than what was going on in season four. Sure. So I've I've spoken a bit, Rob. Do you have any points you would like to bring up? I've talked about what what really captured me about the show it was it was the humour and getting me into horror when I'm not into horror at all. It's the characters and their relationships. It's the the length of the episodes. The arcs play into this. I think we've touched on a lot of the 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 themes and and look I'll I'll just throw in just as a you know off the top of my head I like all the actors in this show you know I don't think there's a dud actor which is really weird in you know normally in a show you think oh I don't particularly like that actor doing that you know with that character or whatever here I'm pretty happy with all of them probably the only character I was funny about was Riley and that was only initially because I just had a funny feeling about him being in a relationship with Buffy. When I rewatched that season later on, I thought, I really quite like Riley. <laughs> so I'd completely changed. Yeah. One of the things that I think highlights the series as well is their willingness to be different every so often and sometimes just break the format a little bit. Like, for example, in the episode that's called Buffy versus Dracula, Dracula turns up and, hey, it's, it's just Dracula. It, it doesn't quite fit with the lore of what vampires are. It's just, hey... Buffy's a vampire slayer. Let's have her fight Dracula for an episode. What are you? All these years fighting us. Their power so near to our own. And you've never once wanted to know what it is that we fight for. Never even a taste. If I drink that? I have not drunk enough for you to change. You must be near death to become one of us. And that comes only when you plead for it. Well, he's not the ultimate vampire, but he's perhaps the the best known vampire in the world. So they just put him in the show. Yeah, there's an episode where there's an alien demon uh, listening to fear in season five. It's the only time you see an alien, but it's something a bit different. There's one episode that does break the format quite infamously. Should we talk about once more with feeling? Oh, yeah, I think we can. What, what was your reaction to it the first time you saw it? I had heard about it before I saw it. And what I had heard is they're doing a musical episode. And I just put my head in my hands and thought, 
oh my god, no, no, this can't be real, this can't be true. And yet I watched it and it was the most enjoyable thing I'd seen in Donkey's Years. It really is a lot of fun, isn't it? The songs are really good. And apparently Joss Whedon spent the entire off-season, where normally he'd go away for three months between seasons and just have a break, clear his head, and then he'd come back. He would start writing, then three months later they'd start filming. He spent an entire three-month break just writing this episode. Yeah, I, and you can see it because the songs are actually really good. You you can, um, I don't know if it's an official release or a bootleg, but there is a CD of the songs getting around, which I've, um, you know, ripped onto my MP3 player. And I sometimes listen to them as standalone little songs, and they're really quite good. They are. And one of the clever things that Whedon does is before he did it, he actually went to all of the cast and he said, look, be honest with me, can you sing, do you like to sing, and what sort of style do you sing in? So a couple of the characters went, nah, I, I don't sing, I can't sing, don't give that to me. So Willow, for example, Alison Hannigan, she only gets a couple of lines across the whole episode. And whereas she, others, and she oh, warbles those out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> whereas I think a couple of others who said, no, no, I'm a classically trained singer, give me, give me a big ballad, give me you know something like that, and he gives it to them. James Masters, who plays Spike, said, oh, look, I just love good quality, you know, English punk. Give me a punk song. Yeah. And so he gives him a punk song and he just, he just belts it out. Let me rest in peace. Let me get some sleep. Let me take my love and bury it in a hole six foot deep. I can lay my body down, but I can't find my sweet release. So let me rest in peace. You know. So... It really has been tailored cleverly to the, the characters, and it's. I, I love that it exists. I kind of also hate it because it started a trend, and I don't think any other musical episode from any series that's tried to do this has ever quite worked. Um, the Flash Supergirl crossover last year got close, but normally these musical episodes are terrible, and they're all trying to copy this. Mm. And one thing I want to add is not only does the singing suit the characters and their abilities as singers but there is actually a plausible reason for why they're singing in the in the show which i think is really really important and yes. you know is is part of what sold me on it it's it's part of the story why they're singing and it it's just seamless and you know as i say i was i was dreading this and as soon as i saw it i thought no this is this is actually quite brilliant it is it is uh, one thing that i wanted to mention is there's a really incredibly large turnover of characters across the seven years true true i mean the scooby gang go from start to finish but around them yeah people do come and go for different reasons yeah there are people that die there are people that just go you know what i've had enough of this i'm leaving town i'm just going uh, there are others that come and go buffy forms relationships and ends relationships uh, i think that's actually really good and one of the things that I think any series that goes for seven years would normally struggle with is that sense of, you know what, why are all these people just standing in the one place for seven years? Surely their lives move on. Mm. You know, they get promoted at work or they move or they get married. And in Buffy, they do. Yeah, and these just aren't bit part people. I mean, you think of someone like Seth Green. He's, you know, in, in a bit of Buffy, but certainly not most of it. Uh, yet he's quite a well-known guy you know who people probably would have liked to have been in more Buffy episodes but he, he comes and he goes and yeah. comes back again <laughs> yeah Miss Calendar who is a big part of the plot she disappears very suddenly anything else that you want to talk about 
No, not for this section. I, I think you, you've made a note here to look at the show's flaws as well. And, you know, maybe we should move on to that because I'll start by saying I find it hard to, to find flaws in this show. But did you make this point because you thought there are some? I, I made this point because I think in any episode of this alternate galaxies we do, we should be willing to acknowledge and look back at the faults. I've, I've noted two. Okay. Uh, the first I have, I think, is a fundamental one. And that is, I honestly think the series went too long. That's fair. Uh, if it was up to me, I would take the ending of series five, which is the most brilliant, powerful, emotional, effective, appropriate, meta, however you want to put it, whatever superlative you want to use, it is a wonderful final episode, except it's not. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think if we look back now, and Buffy had ended with the last episode of season five, we would go, that's a self-contained five series show that was you know had its ups and downs it was pretty bloody good the whole way through and it ended on a magnificent note instead what we get is that plus two seasons that i actually don't reckon are very good and i think are kind of just there to make up the running length yeah well i guess it's no you know no coincidence that it moved channels at this point too yeah it, it did so this is where it moved to upn and even when you look at season six, the big bad there is just three nerds. Yeah, yeah. Although I have met one of them. Um, I met him at a, uh, at a supernova. And when I went up and was chatting to him at his autograph table, I said, you know, the one thing I liked about your character and, and the other two guys were that you were normal guys who were just evil, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You weren't monsters doing monstery things. You were just evil guys, completely normal evil guys. And he said, "Yeah, you got it." And he actually signed the uh, the photo uh, to Rob. Yes, you got it. <laughs> you got oh. it. No one will ever know what that means except me and people who hear this podcast. But um, yeah, I I kind of like those guys. But I know what you mean. They they're a pretty at first glance an uninspiring lot when you compare them to other big bads from previous seasons. Yeah, which which one did you meet? This was Adam Bush, who was uh, Warren Mears. Oh, okay. He He's very good. We should note as well that Danny Strong, who plays another one of them, actually has gone on to write some very well-regarded and award-winning screenplays, um, movies and telemovies. Mm. So, yeah, I think the show ran too long. Another thing, look, it's not really a fault, but it is something that if you're going into the show, you need to be ready for, is that this is written in California 90s language. Yeah, big time. And when I was, you know, 18 and thought I was cool and was watching uh, Dawson's Creek, you know, I thought I was cool and I was watching Dawson's Creek, yeah. That's a sign. <laughs> We're not talking about so Dawson right now. We're talking about me. I mean, you can't keep on doing this to me, Potter. what? Yeah, I thought this was wonderful. I do look, know that looking back now, as somebody who's a bit older, there are times when I go, ooh, that just feels a little bit too much sometimes like an adult trying to write for a 17-year-old girl. Yeah. Uh, it's not bad. I mean, and most of it's very witty, but if I could tone that down a little bit in hindsight, I probably would. Yeah. And, I mean, look, that that said, the writers on this show are... There are some amazing writers on this show. We haven't even mentioned any besides Joss. So, quick shout-out to Marty Noxon and Jane Espenson, especially. Yes. Again, two very effective women writers who are now doing wonderful things but they wrote some great episodes 
Oh, yeah, when I was looking down the episode guide to remind myself of, of episodes earlier today, I noted how many they had written. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, Marty and, and Jane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just one after the other. Oh, great story. Brilliant story. Amazing story. And we should also mention that a number of the actors, um, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Alison Hannigan, Anthony Stewart Head, Seth Green, uh, several others have gone on and had very successful careers post-Buffy. Oh, absolutely. They've, 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 you know, they've all done some pretty amazing things. The, the, the sad story, though, is probably Nicholas Brendan, who played Xander, um, because he's had some mental health issues um, in recent times. He probably has fared, you know, least well out of the, the Scooby gang. But most of them have done pretty well. Um, Alison Hannigan on How I Met Your Mother, for example. Yeah, David Boreanaz uh, was the lead on his own show for a number of years afterwards. Bones, I think he was the lead on. Yes. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and Brendan Nicholas, I'll just say, is the one cast member that I've met. Is that right? Yeah, he came to a convention here oh, a number of years ago now. And it was it was just at that phase in his life where he was getting himself together and starting to talk about his story and starting to get himself you know, back on track. So that was really quite interesting to meet him in, in that time of his life. Yeah. Yeah, I, I quite like him, you know, very much. We'll get to that maybe when we get to our favourite characters. Sure. So we've praised Joss Whedon a lot here. We've talked about uh, the role that this has played in terms of feminism. And, and let's let's mention here that there are now whole university schools of academia that are uh, all about studying Buffy and the role that she's played in media culture and in pop culture and culture generally in terms of that feminist movement. Uh, it's been a really big part. It's been an inspiration for a number of people. Absolutely. Which is why we can't sort of go on without mentioning something, which we'll, we'll only touch on briefly because this is really about the whole show. And that's that just recently, in fact, just in August, Joss Whedon's ex-wife published an, an essay talking about Joss Whedon uh, leaving her and his infidelity and what she saw as a betrayal perhaps of his feminist ideals a Whedon spokesperson put out a fairly short statement just saying look there are inaccuracies and misrepresentations and you know for the sake of the kids he's not going to say anything but it caused such a kerfuffle in fandom that the uh, the fan site Whedonesque.com which has been going for ages and is absolutely devoted to Joss as you can tell by the very title um, announced that they're going to close down. They're just going to become a read-only website. They're not going to do any new news or let people comment or anything. It's just going to become a read-only website. That's it for them. And I thought, far out. They're probably Joss's biggest supporters in the world, and this recent news has knocked them for six, and they're just giving up. Yeah, it's very sad that they feel like that. But I, I understand that if you were that invested in the show, and I understand why you'd be that invested in the show, then how you would feel about that. To me, this has always been a very positive show. I've, I've admired the things the show has done, but first and foremost, it's been a fun thing to watch, and I haven't quite invested on that level. So for me, it's not quite that big a betrayal, and and, and that allows me to sort of say, perhaps, you know, slightly circumspectly, perhaps slightly dubiously, but to be able to say, well, it's between him and his wife or ex-wife, it's none of my business. I can say that because I wasn't as invested, but other people were. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, because there are elements of feminism present through all of Whedon's work, not just Buffy. And he's always given his mother credit for, you know, inspiring that in him. So a lot of people have really bought into Buffy and, and Dollhouse, perhaps more so than Firefly, uh, these strong female characters and such. And 
to hear some of the things that she wrote in the essay. And we won't mention them here. If you want to look it up, Kai Cole is her name. I'm sure you can Google it and find the whole essay, uh, see what she has to say. And just remember, it's only one side of the story, I guess. Yeah, that's right. So we'll move on now to a few little segments that we want to have in each of these episodes. And the first one, Rob, is why would a Doctor Who fan like this show? Hmm. That is a very good question, Dave. Well, what, what, what's your answer? Look, Joss Whedon spent three years at Winchester College in the UK. It's kind of like a, a public school or a private school is what we would call it here in Australia. I never know what they call them public schools in the UK. Hmm. Anyway, he spent three years at Winchester College. And I've always pondered if that English experience added a bit of quirkiness to the way he writes. A kind of quirkiness that's not out of step with Doctor Who writing. You know, when you think of the, the typical American teenage show, you don't really think of it as being slightly eccentric or slightly British. But there is that slight twist in Buffy that I think might come from his time in the UK. That's my opening salvo. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly some of the characters there, Giles particularly, you see have that English uh, sort of background. But he also did watch Doctor Who while he was in the UK. Oh, he would have. He would have had to. Oh, no, he did. He, he, sta- he stayed in there. Um, he said that Doctor Who and Blake Seven were both very big influences on the way that he wanted to write this sort of serial format, which is interesting because I think the bigger point to make is that a large amount of Russell T. Davies' new Doctor Who does draw its style and its themes and its ideas from Buffy. It does. I mean, even just starting with the episode length, I mean, 45-minute episodes aren't that new to Doctor Who, given there was a season of Doctor Who that went with 45-minute episodes, at least in the UK. But in general terms, to go for that sort of format to tell a whole story, that was that was really cribbing off Buffy, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It has a more modern feel. It has a more... It, it's tonally very similar in that it can lurch between being very funny and very moving. But Rose particularly, I think, does draw a lot from the Buffy character herself. Oh, yeah. And not just because she's blonde, folks. Um, (laughs) Also, we've discussed character um, relationships. We've discussed arcs. We've discussed big bads. These are all things that, you know, RTD has has put into his Doctor Who, which kicked off Doctor Who again in 2005. So, yes, I, I see a lot of similarities. And I think a Doctor Who fan, particularly a new Who fan, I should state, would feel quite at home with this format, I think. So... What we also want to do is lead on from there and say, if you're somebody who is not seeing this series and trying to decide, well, do I give it a go? We want to give you a couple of tips, episodes that you might want to sample and go, yeah, I I really like that. I'll keep going. Or if you start from the start, how long to stick with it? So, Rob, I've got my pick for a sample episode, Mm -hmm. and that is Homecoming from season three. Oh, that is a good one. That that That's leaping forward quite a bit, though. It, look, it is, uh, but it's early enough in Season 3 that you don't need a lot of background to understand it. But I think Homecoming really summarises uh, the characters. It's, it's very funny, it's very clever, and it's got a lot of really good action. You get to see Buffy their best. That said, if you want to start at Season 1, I actually reckon the first two episodes are really, really good. Do you really? You're going to disagree with me. I do, because that plays into the notes I made on, you know, where should you switch off if you're not enjoying it? And I made some notes that, you know, when I last watched Buffy from Go to Woe, which was maybe seven or eight years ago now, when I got my wife into watching it, 
I watched the first couple of episodes and thought, hmm, I'm not sure this is what really gets someone into it. But by episodes three and four, which are uh, Witch and Teacher's Pet, talking of that uh, praying mantis now for the third time in in this episode, (laughs) uh, you're starting to see the comedy and the horror and all the fun of the the high school years that, you, you know, of Buffy. So it's it hits the ground running pretty fast, but I'm not I'm not entirely sold on episodes one and two. They feel almost piloty to me. Like even the video quality seems a bit down. I know there is actually an unaired pilot that sits before them, but episodes one and two almost feel like a pilot to me and just not quite right. Oh, that's interesting. I think they're really effective. I, I think that if you're sampling Buffy for the first time. Watch the full first season. It's only half length. There's some really interesting stuff in there. There's some very weird paths in there, you know, places that they don't really go again. Uh, like the one with Sid the Puppet. That's that's a bit weird. That's the puppet show. Well, you know, that that's almost a, a fun episode I'd almost recommend to people from the first series just because it is such a weird little quirky thing. Okay. And to me, and to me, it's, it's, it's very Buffy. Although they don't do something like that again, I think the humour... And the weirdness, I think, could get people into it as a sort of a standalone episode. That, that's true, that's true. But certainly if you get to the end of season one, uh, Prophecy Girl, and you haven't got anything out of it, you're not going to get anything out of this series. Yeah, look, I'd made the note that by three and four, it's really firing. Just like you said, if you're not into it by the end, look, there's another two seasons where they're still at high school doing much the same thing. That's another 44 episodes. Um, so if you haven't liked the first 12, you're not going to like the next 44 probably. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm, and whilst it does kick up a gear in Season 2 and then up another gear in Season 3, it's still going pretty well in Season 1. Did you have a particular sample episode you were going to nominate, Rob? Well, you know, I, I almost by default, I just nominated The Puppet Show. Perhaps something from the first... I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to the first season, you know, rather than leaping forward too much. Maybe something like Angel, because yes. it introduces such a key character. You know, you, you have all these early episodes, you know, the first half a dozen probably if i was to count that are introducing the concept introducing buffy monster of the week you know fun stuff happening teachers pets in there which is a great story but when you get to angel you start to see different things happening and maybe that'd be an interesting place to sort of just watch a one-off i like that i like that so season one generally but homecoming or angel or puppet show episodes you might want to just just sample and see if you like it Hmm. agreed so rob Favourite yes. characters. Who, who are you going to nominate as your favourite character or characters? At the time I watched the series, Dave, I was very much a Xander fan. He was the guy with all the fun lines. He was just the fun guy in general. If this was Friends, he'd be Chandler Bing, for example, if that gives people a touchstone, <laughs> you know, with another popular show of the 90s. They sometimes let him be more dramatic and sometimes it lands and sometimes it doesn't. Like, I think sometimes he'd talk about domestic abuse that he'd endured and that was like ooh, you yeah. know th- that's really serious stuff other times it didn't and he came off as just as being self-righteous as buffy at times you know and buffy was already you know <laughs> covering that pretty well putting that aside i loved all the scooby gang in general but for a character who's sort of outside the scooby gang i really liked faith yeah okay she's a very good character now eliza dushku eliza dushku who i have also met at a supernova is basically another Slayer, folks. How did this happen? Well, you'll have to watch the series to find out how other Slayers start popping up. But 
she's in there as another Slayer whose moral compass perhaps isn't quite the same as Buffy's. <laughs> and she plays into the whole storyline with the mayor, which is, you know, a, a big bad I love. And mm, yeah, faith for me. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. So I had two characters that I've got as my, my, my honourable mentions, not because they're not as good, but I just think because they're not there for all that long. I'm a big fan of Riley from season four and five. Okay, yeah, and I got into him on my second run through of Buffy. Yeah, I, I like him from the first time. I've got a lot of time for him. And I think Seth Green's character, Oz, who, again, is there just for series uh, two, three, and part of four. Yeah. He's another really interesting character, and, and it's no surprise that Seth Green, you know, he already had a bit of a career when he started doing Buffy, but he went on and has done a lot of things. But Oh, he's the voice of Chris Griffin and uh, Family Guy. He does the robot chicken stuff. Yep, he's Scott Evil in the Austin Powers films. He certainly is. Now, are you about to go to your main favourite character? I am. Because I have a couple of runners-up too, and what if I throw them out there and see if we get a, a strike maybe with your favourite character? Okay. My, my honourable mentions would be big time for Spike. I've met James Masters, so, you know, that's a... I've met more Buffy people than Doctor Who people, I think, just wow. quietly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and also for Anya, primarily because I once dated an American who was actually very much like her with really quick quips and a lack of social filter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> even now, my own wife, who is also American, I seem to date Americans for some reason, um, my own wife is like that, so there might be a sort of a pattern emerging here. I also like Evil Angel and uh, Vampire Willow. I I like a lot of characters in this, Dave. Yeah, look, they're all good. I think if Spike had just had the first couple of seasons that he had, he would be right up there with me. I think that they, they did struggle to know what to do with him as, as it went on. Uh, but I have to nominate Giles. Yeah, great think, character. Yeah, I think he just holds the whole show together. I think when he isn't working, the show doesn't quite work. The way that Anthony Stewart Head plays him, that idea of somebody who is wrestling with his duty, his lack of experience, but his desire to do the right thing, his desire to protect Buffy, uh, that leads him down some very interesting paths. And he also gets some very funny episodes as well. Uh, Band Candy is one very funny episode for him. It is. And also, he has his own demons, which never get fully explored. Like, we see him do some pretty badass things at times. And we know he has this backstory as Ripper, mm. but it's never fully fleshed out. So he's got like other levels going on as well. So yeah, he's a very interesting character. That brings us to our last part, which is our favourite episodes. Now, we've agreed we're going to do honourable mentions, a favourite mm. and a guilty pleasure. Yes. So should we do each of those in turn? Oh, gosh, my notes are so all over the place, Dave. I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what would you like first? Right, well, let's do our honourable mentions first. I'm going to nominate Lie to Me. Yep. Gingerbread. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And The Iron Team. Okay. Do you want to run through any of the plots there that, that really stand out for you, why you like them? Okay, so Lie to Me is about one of Buffy's old school friends coming back into town and... For reasons that I won't disclose, he wants to become a vampire and he wants to use Buffy to do a deal and, and, and do that. And um, it's a really wonderful performance. Gingerbread is about the town suddenly rebelling against all these demons and, and being sort of uh, worked up by a, an evil presence. But they suddenly decide that they're going to purge themselves of 
of the witches and the demons, very sort of Salem-esque. Mm. And, and that, that becomes quite intense. And the Iron Team is the episode where season four really transitions. And um, I'm not going to say anything more because I think I would spoil too much, but I just think it's a really good character piece. Okay. My honourable mentions would be Graduation Day Part 1 and 2. Yep. Because it just felt so epic and it was a real turning point. It felt like it was a real moment in the series. It was the end of high school. It was the end of the mayor's arc. Really good stuff. I'm going to throw in a mention of Band Candy, which you mentioned a moment ago. Yep, uh, which yep. is basically, without giving too much away, all the adults freak out and start acting like teenagers. <laughs> and it's <Yep>. very funny. <laughs> Hilarious, actually. It's, it's mm. fantastic. And then I'm going to jump forward to another funny episode. And this is one I hadn't thought of for, for years, Dave. And when I looked through the list today, I went, how, how have I forgotten this one? Double Neat Palace. <laughs> Where basically Buffy's working at a dodgy version of McDonald's. <laughs> and uh, hilarity ensues. There's, there's this manager, right? He's all scary and mysterious. You know? And there's the secret ingredient. And, and the people that work here, they're, they're kind of strange, you know, they just, just stare into space, plus they disappear. Disappear poof? No, not poof. Well, I don't think so. It's fast food. I've swum these murky waters, my friend. There's the assorted creepiness, there's staring, there's the enthusiastic not showing up at all. <laughs> I think you're seeing demons where there's just life. That is a very odd episode. I do remember that quite vividly. <laughs> I thought I'd pull a quirky one out there. Uh, shall we do our guilty pleasure? Oh, yes. So I was almost going to go with Reptile Boy, which is all about a frat house that worships a demon, but it's a little bit too guilty and a little bit not quite enough pleasure. I've gone with Go Fish from season two, which is the one where the swim team turn into fish monsters. They sort of become like amphibious, don't they? And they can go really fast through the water. Yeah, and it's... In many ways, it's sort of a terrible plot. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's quite awful, but I really enjoy it. <laughs> okay. My guilty pleasure episode, Dave, is Ted. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Go on. With with John Ritter as Ted. It's Buffy does evil stepdad, isn't it? It's essentially, yeah. Like, Ted sort of has these 1950s sort of values and, you know, is is cracking down on Buffy and she's sort of rebelling against that because well, who, who are you? You're not my dad kind of thing. And I don't think I can give much more away, but Ted is not quite what he seems. No, it, I think I'll simply add there. It's another example of Buffy doing something that can really happen to a teenager in a twisted way. So the idea of your single mum suddenly starts dating again, and that could be horrible because he could be a monster dot, dot, dot. Yes. He's not a monster though. I'm not spoiling it. There's a twist. Oh, yeah, there is a big twist. But, yeah, that's very clever. So, finally, our favourite episode. I'm going to nominate The Wish. Oh, good one. Tell us why. This is an episode where a parallel version of our reality is created, and it's not quite, you know, as if the Nazis won World War II. It's not quite if the vampires won, but it does show a world where Buffy hasn't been around. And the vampires are much more powerful, they're much more involved. And because it's a parallel universe, you get to push the characters and the story that little bit further and go a little bit darker and a little bit more intense and actually do things with the characters that you couldn't do. See some of them play evil versions of themselves. Uh, kill a couple of them. 
and you couldn't do that in the real one, so it really pushes it. But it ends with a wonderful climax and Giles's final line before he, he solves everything. I think is a really powerful moment, and that just really stuck with me. So I really like this episode. I wish Buffy Summers had never come to Sunnydale. Done. That would be cool. No, wait. I wish Buffy Summers had never been born. Done. And I wish that Xander Harris never again knows the touch of a woman. And that Willow wakes up tomorrow covered in monkey Done. hair. In fact, I wish all men Except maybe the dumb and the really agreeable kind disappear off the face of the That is a great episode, a, a fantastic one. You know, and and that's the problem when when it comes to picking a a favorite episode. You know, there there are the big episodes that everyone talks about. We've already spoken about the musical episode once more with feeling, or you might hear people say, "How about that episode of Buffy where no one talks for the whole episode?" Actually, people do talk. It's called Hush, but they don't talk for much of the episode. Yeah, or, or, you know, the climax to season five, um, The Gift. That's another very powerful one. Absolutely. Or, you know, if I just say The Body, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's another one, actually, that I couldn't go back and watch again. That's a watch, watch once only and be scarred for life one. That's that's heavy as hell. So, you know, there, there are all these amazing episodes out there. So I'm going to do something a little odd. I'm going to choose something from season two, and it's in the middle of a run of stories. Mm-hmm. And the episode is Passion. Good call. Now, this is where Angel's turned evil. He's running around doing all sorts of evil stuff. And unlike other shows where the evil guy says, I'm really evil, I'm going to do evil stuff, but never quite gets there, Angel does something incredibly evil as Angelus and it knocked me for six. And, you know, although I'd seen other stuff happen in the show, this was the first time I thought, oh, hell, wow, wow. You know, there was another, I think, five or six stories in the season to go and that plays out the whole sort of storyline. But passion has always sat with me for um, for different reasons. It's a very powerful piece of drama and it's... It is kind of the episode where from then on you know Buffy's playing for keeps and, 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 and the series is also playing for keeps. Like, this isn't just a, you know, watch it and forget it. This is, this is you know, the characters, yeah. I, I can't articulate it. It's just an incredibly powerful episode that just shows how deep into things the show can go. Yeah, and the scene where we see what's happened because of Angelus and the way that's filmed I can I can even picture it in my head now it's been years since I last saw it yes but I can picture it and it's just so good it is so we've mentioned a number of episodes there some to dip into some to watch if you've got a bit of a twisted sense of humor or just some really good classics we'll be really interested to know if our listeners agree with us if you're an existing Buffy fan what's your favorite what's your guilty pleasure do you agree with us please do give us a tweet or and um, let us know. Yeah, or an email, because I think you'll need more than 140 characters to discuss <laughs> some of these topics. There's just so many good stories. There are. So unless there's any other points you want to make, Rob, I think we've covered Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think so. I mean, I um, I did a little bit of research today and just found a few best of lists that are out there on the internet. Buffy is listed in Time Magazine's 100 Best TV Shows of All Time. It's second on Empire Magazine's 50 Greatest TV Shows of All Time. It came third in 2004 and 2007 for TV Guide's Top Cult Shows Ever. 
It's 27th on the Hollywood Reporter's Hollywood's 100 Favourite TV Shows. It's 38th in Rolling Stone's list of 100 Greatest TV Shows of All Time. And 41st in TV Guide's 50 Greatest TV Shows of All Time. So this is a quality show. We're not just two guys raving on if you've never seen this. The world agrees that this is one of the greatest TV shows of all time. It's a great TV show and it's a genuine cultural touchstone, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, seasons two and three are my jam, as the kids would say. Uh, I love it all, but seasons two and three particularly. So if you get through that first season and you're enjoying it, I think for two and three, you'll just be in for such a treat. Look, I like all of the first five seasons, but three and five are my top two. Yeah, very fair. I also have a quote from Russell T. Davis. We've been talking about him and the influence uh, it had on Doctor Who. And he says, Buffy the Vampire Slayer showed the whole world and an entire sprawling industry that writing monsters and demons and end of the world is not hack work. It can challenge the best. Joss Whedon raised the bar for every writer, not just genre slash niche writers, but every single one of us. I like that. I like that a lot. High praise. Yeah. From a man who's got a few hits under his own belt. He knows a thing or two about writing himself. So, yeah, I'd, I'd take that pretty seriously, that quote. So, Rob, what are we going to be talking about next edition of Alternate Galaxies? Next edition, Dave, we're going to talk about another series that gets quoted a lot on the Doctor Who show, and it's not The Simpsons. It's Babylon 5. Yeah, we'll be sticking with the 1990s on this occasion. We will be doing other decades, we promise. But, yes, Babylon 5 will be coming up in a couple of months. Very, very excited to be talking about that, actually. I am too. You know, you know, with Buffy, I, I've always had that favourite episode. The Wish has always been a clear number one. I'm going to have to think very long and hard about my favourite Babylon 5. Again, it, for me, it's like Buffy insofar as there are so many good stories. There are so many diverse stories as well. It's really hard to narrow it down. It is, although I think I've got my guilty pleasure picked out. So I'm not sure what that says about the series. <laughs> so if you like Babylon 5, uh, tune in next time. In the meantime, we'll have another edition of our regular Doctor Who show coming up in, well, at the end of the month. That's right. 24th of September, that will be out. But before then, you'll also have another episode of Random Fandom and, of course, the weekly You and Who talking episodes as well. But until then, I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Alternate Galaxies, the podcast where Rob and Dave from the Doctor Who show take a look at other great sci-fi and fantasy that we think Doctor Who fans might like. You can reach us at hello at the dwshow.net, on Twitter at the dwshow, or on Facebook forward slash the dwshow. Alternate Galaxies is an irregular podcast, so stay tuned to the Doctor Who show and other programs on our feed to know when the next episode's coming. Our theme music is called Wretched Destroyer and is by Kevin McLeod. Find him at incompetech.com. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.